0: Marhaba, and welcome to The Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm Hilmarie Hutchison, and today I'm so excited to have Joseph Makanu as my guest on the show. Joseph is a scientist, health tech investor, medical device entrepreneur, and a management consultant, and the founding partner of Verge, Healthcare Tech Fund. So accomplished. It's incredible. Joseph, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure.
1: For our listeners who don't know you already, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and who you are?
0: Yeah, I'm happy to. So I was born quite a few decades ago in Romania, emigrated quite early to Canada, spent a bit of my childhood growing up in South Korea, of all places. And that was the first time I was exposed to Asia just as a little toddler. And ironically, I learned how to speak English and Romanian there as opposed to in two countries where I was born and then spent most of my time growing up. So when I moved back to Canada, went to school, actually, I spent way too long in school, did a bachelor's, PhD, and then an MBA, the first two in Toronto and the latter in London in Ontario before starting really with uh, real work, so to speak. I didn't actually get my first real paycheck until I was already 30 years old. It's kind of funny. I did start very technically in the first phase of my life. So I was in computer programming, I wanted to become a scientist, I pursued that became an accidental medical device entrepreneur, which led me to the world of business. And that's ultimately what led me to the MBA when we're trying to raise money for a med device startup. And well, frankly, we didn't really know how to sitting on the other side of the table of investors that thought, wow, they're doing really cool things, would love to be able to do what they're doing, which is basically choosing the future in which we live by giving capital to or not giving capital to various innovative ideas that may change the world. So that's what I thought I'd really like to do during my MBA, which unfortunately was during the great financial crisis. My aspirations were downgraded from I'd love a job in VC to I'd love a job. And uh, interestingly enough, That's what brought me back to Asia the second and third time, second time to study Mandarin, because it seemed like everything was really heading in that direction. We were seeing the largest transfer of wealth from West to East. And I thought Taiwan would be a great place to study that having traveled there on a backpacking trip around the world earlier. And then uh, to China, where I found a job in a private equity fund that was investing in foreign listed Chinese companies around the world. That is ironically where I learned about management consulting as the head of that fund was an ex-McKinsey consultant. And having read McKinsey training materials translated from English to Chinese back to English. It sounded awfully poetic. And I thought, well, wow, that'd be really interesting to study, maybe in English natively, and maybe in nothing but healthcare. So I moved back to Canada, you know, looked around for all the different consulting firms who would let me do nothing but healthcare full time and would actually say yes to my application. And fortunately, one of them did. This firm, Oliver Wyman did. I started in Toronto, thought I would do it for one or two years, and then ended up spending almost seven and a half years at at the firm. Halfway through, I was asked to relocate to Singapore to help start the healthcare and life sciences practice for Asia Pacific. During this time, I met a lot of really interesting entrepreneurs that were trying to fix some of these fundamental health problems that I saw all around me in the region. Singapore is really nice and developed, but there are a lot of challenges and and shortcomings in the health systems and the 680 million people, or maybe even the almost 4 billion people within a six-hour flight radius of Singapore. These startups were, were having difficulty raising initial capital and thought, well, hey, I've got a nice job that keeps paying me a salary, so why don't I start angel investing? It's from there where I thought that's a whole lot more impactful and interesting and engaging than writing a bunch of PowerPoint slides for uh, senior executives and hoping that it might be put to use someday. And that's what led me to really want to seek to do investment full-time and the creation of Verge Health Tech Fund.
1: What a story. My goodness, you've done a lot of things. Fantastic. Let's just hop right back to the beginning. How many languages do you speak?
0: I like to joke I don't speak any properly, but (laughs) I am speaking English with you right now. My Romanian sounds like a child of five years old, but I can understand it. Speak a bit of Mandarin, Japanese a little bit of Spanish. We were forced to learn French in school, so I still speak a little bit of that as well. And weirdly enough, and I've lost it since, I was semi-fluent in Norwegian in the late 90s because of a rather obscure programming community called the demo scene that had a lot of Scandinavians there and mostly Finns actually, but that language was just impossible to try to learn.
1: I wasn't counting, but that sounded like a lot of languages. So incredible. And then you also mentioned how many degrees have you taken?
0: Yeah, I spent a little too much time in school. So three degrees, bachelor, PhD and MBA.
1: Wow. Incredible. So a really smart guy that enjoys learning, I imagine.
0: The latter part.
1: There's just so many questions I could ask you, but let's try and focus in on the one thing. You mentioned some of the challenges and shortcomings in the healthcare system that you noticed. What were some of those that you identified or that you saw maybe a gap?
0: Oh, let me count the ways. Most places you have an imbalance of healthcare supply and demand, as in there's way too much demand for a very limited supply of healthcare. And there's all sorts of structural and historical reasons as to why this is the case. But overwhelmingly, it's really an underinvestment in healthcare infrastructure, an underinvestment in human capital related to the practicing of healthcare. It's kind of a mismatch of where the healthcare resources are, that even the ones that do exist and where they're actually needed. So if you look at a lot of emerging markets, you have maybe 30 to 50 percent urbanization and disproportionately the amount of medical resources are concentrated in the capital city. Are they all in public practice or private practice? Depends. A lot are in private practice. Is that affordable for people that live in that city or even live outside of the city in the countryside? Maybe not. And that's one of the first real sources of, I guess, inequity of healthcare. You see this recurring all around the world in countries that are both rich and poor, of course, more prevalent in the latter.
1: Let's talk about precision public health. Is that related to what we've been talking about now?
0: It is, because ultimately, if you can, I mean, it is defined as delivering the right care to the right person at the right time. That is the ideal of precision medicine and precision public health is really the application of this beyond what we would consider to be traditional medical practices. For example, in traditional medicine, you feel sick, you go see something about it, they tell you to do something, it might be expensive, it might not be, it might be the right thing, it might be the wrong thing, but you do it and the problem either gets better, it doesn't, or you die. The question is, did you have to wait for there to be a problem? Could you actually have some sort of preventative measure that said, hey, if I do these things, then maybe I won't get sick. That's kind of really generic advice. But let's say you are wearing some sort of wearable tracker or you have an idea of some warning signs to see. That increases the degree of potential personalization. And then one of the ultimate things is, if you know what is normal for yourself versus what is normal across a distribution curve for a population, then you can really start getting involved earlier and more precisely. And it may not necessarily be more expensive with the right technologies involved. I'll think of a really crude example here. Let's say for your whole life, you've had a resting heart rate of 90 beats per minute. For normal people, that's pretty high. You would expect a resting heart rate of you know, maybe 50 to 70 beats per minute, right? But let's say for all your life, you've had a resting heart rate of 90. You go to a doctor for the first time and your resting heart rate is 50. Your doctor will say, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. All good. You're healthy. But in fact, you have pretty severe bradycardia relative to what your normal resting heart rate is. Now, that's a bit of an extreme example, but there are so many other parameters which could be actually normal for you, but we just don't know because we just have the sense of a distribution curve or what are normal values for a particular parameter. This gets more complicated because sometimes these parameters interlink with one another and then you start interlinking these parameters with your genetics your environment your epigenetics your metabolomics and all this your microbiome even you know so it gets infinitely complicated so this idea of personalized precision medicine it's kind of like this um i don't know if you, if you remember a long time ago and you were loading jpegs on web pages and they'd start all pixelated and they'd gradually get more and more into focus i feel that's kind of the whole evolution of personalized precision medicine as well. And we're just kind of in the early days of this journey. So you see like the eight by eight colored blocks instead of an image.
1: We're talking about wearables and personalized wearables, right? For healthcare. Are we talking about continuous glucose monitors or something totally different?
0: Oh, it could be part of the solution. I mean, there's still, and it doesn't necessarily have to be even wearables. It could be just weighing yourself every day and figuring out what's normal or taking blood tests every few months to understand what's normal. It could be point of care diagnostics that you pee on a strip every once in a while and you see what different metabolites show up and whether that's out of the usual. It could be wearing your Fitbit or your aura Ring. Um, continuous glucose monitors, I think even though it's one parameter, it is actually a really interesting one because there's so much you can learn about your glucose levels and how they vary according to how much you sleep, the time of day, what you've eaten, whether you're sick, whether you're exercising there's just so, so much out there that can really help you stay in peak condition or potentially intervene early if something's amiss.
1: Yes, that makes absolute sense. It would certainly help to you know early on because then you can take the measures that would help make a difference. As the founding partner of Verge Health Tech fund. Your focus is on seed stage healthcare technology companies relevant to the emerging markets. So what are some of the infrastructure human capital gaps in early stage health tech investment?
0: It really depends. And I know that's kind of a weak answer. It depends on the area that the startup is operating in. It depends also on the geography where the startup is operating. in. if I were to kind of average it all out, I think that generally speaking, you've got a lot of founders that really are passionate about solving a problem, but they don't necessarily have all the human capital required to get to where they need to be before they run out of money. I think two areas stand out. One is, you know, real good technical talent. And I don't mean technical as in building devices. I mean, technical as in CTO, especially if you're doing something that involves a lot of data and software and interfacing with different pieces in the ecosystem. That's one skill that we see is in, in real short supply. And I think a lot of really good technical talent has been sucked away by the large companies and some of the more attractive fintechs and web three companies. Although I think we're starting to see a small reversal there. And then the other big talent gap I see is really around regulatory. These folks are in short supply. They're usually working either as regulatory consultants or for large life sciences companies. And startups really can't afford the right regulatory guidance early enough in their journey. And sometimes they'll get to a prototype, it'll work, and then they'll realize that it's totally incompatible from a regulatory point of view, and they have to start again. And that's like the worst case scenario. The other big challenge is seed stage startup investing it's a lonely field when you're looking for additional capital if you haven't gotten the solution to a point where it's generating revenue or you know regulatory approval or an easy story to tell with clear product market fit then it's really hard to attract follow-on capital especially if you're outside of the traditional sources of capital and the coasts of the us and maybe london and tel aviv and switzerland and, and other parts of the world the last one is probably around integration with existing healthcare infrastructure doctors are really short on time and they don't have the bandwidth to entertain a lot of innovations generally unless it obviously improves their practice and saves them time. Insurers, governments, hospital administrators also find it, also life sciences companies, find it really difficult to work with small entities that move 100 times faster than they do but are also magnitude smaller in terms of resources and what they can do. That's another really big challenge. In short, there are tons of challenges with uh, seed stage investing in health tech. However, it is also really rewarding because you basically are seeing someone with a really cool idea that might impact a lot of lives actually build it almost from scratch to somewhere where you can actually start seeing it impact lives.
1: Clearly, there are tremendous challenges. Can you maybe talk about some of the solutions that you've been involved in or that you've seen? As you mentioned, or as you said, it's rewarding to see something where it's created a solution. Do you have any examples maybe you can share with us?
0: I have piles of examples. Luckily, within our team, we've invested in over 40 health tech companies, and we've impacted over 40 million lives with those. I'd say one example that comes to mind is maybe it doesn't sound super exciting in terms of, you know, it's not space age technologies, there's no lasers involved. It's something pretty basic. What happens if you take someone in the village who has a bit of time and inclination to help people, train them to become a community health worker, empower them with technology as in small sensors, high quality products to distribute, microinsurance policies, give them a tablet to track all this, give health education campaigns, be able to do some rudimentary health records and health screening and uh, set them loose on the village. What happens if you do that? What's the impact they can have? And we have a company in our portfolio that's actually headquartered here in Singapore and active across five different countries and two continents that has done exactly this. And they have impacted And they're just in the early days of their existence, 1.1 million lives across a thousand villages in India, Indonesia. Philippines, Cambodia, and Kenya. I'm really proud when I see this company, It's and the company's called Reach52, and I see the impact they have. I wonder, why aren't there more like this? Why is it difficult to understand from an investor perspective why companies like this can't actually make a really big difference and actually also grow economically quite rapidly in time, which is something that they've actually quite well done. And the other interesting thing is, when we have all these other innovations in our portfolio, like handheld sensors and diagnostic tests and things like this. And you now have a field force that's in the thousands that can take this to the very corners of rural communities around the world to make a huge impact in health. That gets me really excited.
1: I can understand that. It must be so incredibly rewarding to be part of this kind of change to affect so many people in disadvantaged communities, I imagine. Can you share some of the lessons that you've learned from building an Asian-based global Healthcare Venture Fund?
0: The first lesson I have is nothing ever happens as quickly or as easily as people say it will. That's one of the lessons I've learned. Eventually, if you're persistent, consistent, and do what you say you're going to do, you'll eventually get there. The path might not be linear from A to B, but you'll eventually get there. I've learned that it's really good to have the world's best airport (laughs) next to your house. Because uh, there is a lot of travel involved with running a global fund. I've learned that it's really helpful to try to be useful to a lot of people that you meet because you never know when they might encounter something that's you know highly relevant and life-changing for you. I think I've been the beneficiary of such things too many times to count, so i don't want to highlight any particular examples. The other really I said the other really big lesson is that, you know, I think people do want the best for you and want you to succeed, especially if you're trying to do something quite important. So, again, I've been really fortunate to have had a lot of helping hands along the way. And by no means can this be a single person effort. You, you definitely need a team to try to do this. And, and one of the things I think one of my regrets that I've had is not maybe taking a little bit more risk and trying to recruit a team even before I knew I was going to really need one as we work on the second chapter of this journey and try to go to scale. I think I was too conservative with that approach and I should have probably brought on some help earlier.
1: Excellent. Very good. It's been an excellent discussion with you. You're trying to make some really big changes. You've uh, taken on some very big challenges. And as you mentioned earlier when we were chatting, how important it is, the importance of healthcare and why people should care. So it's been really interesting, very insightful. So thank you very much for that. Now we've come to the segment of our show where I will ask you a few rapid fire questions, our version of a game show. Are you ready?
0: Absolutely.
1: I know you've traveled a lot. So what's your favorite vacation destination?
0: I'd say Bhutan. Or Japan.
1: What scares you? Entropy. What is your favorite drink?
0: I'm going to say something weird. I'm going to say Borjomi, which is a Georgian spring water.
1: Wow. I never heard that answer. Fantastic. What is one thing you do each day, no matter how busy you are?
0: Aside from breathing and counting my lucky stars for being alive, I do stop and I do deliberately breathe. I pause. I reflect. And I try to reduce the amount of stress that I have built up subconsciously, like just taking a few deep breaths every day does miracles.
1: I think you're right. Absolutely. So that was the rapid fire done. So that was pretty easy. Before we wrap up, we'd like to do our green pill moment. So what was the green pill moment or your green pill moment, the action or event that was the turning point for you or your career?
0: I think there's probably two green pill moments. Am I allowed to have two green pill moments?
1: You absolutely can have two green pill moments.
0: I think the first was actually just getting out of my comfort zone and moving here to Singapore. Actually going through with the transfer, going to a part of the world I knew next to nothing about, aside from Singapore itself, just dialing up the volume to 11. You know, Had I stayed in North America, I could probably predict my life for the next 50 years with quite reasonable accuracy but everything changed and then the i'd say the larger green pill moment was consciously deciding to leave a very well-paying job that was quite senior to do something i've never done before which is start a venture capital fund didn't know how to raise money didn't know how to run a vc but i knew that I needed scale in order to have the change that I wanted to make. And I really finally figured out what change I want to make in this world. And it's a real privilege to figure out what you actually want to do with yourself. And once you figure that out, you got to do it. In hindsight, I probably should have planned it a little bit better. I kind of just leapt head first and gave myself no choice but to not fail.
1: That's the good thing about burn the bridges, right? You can't go back. You just have to keep going forward.
0: Yeah, I guess. And I mean, it is a bit of survivorship bias because, you know, there are people who probably tried to do similar things and failed, but you don't hear about them.
1: No, you hear about the success stories and yours is certainly one. And amazing when people take that green pool, get that moment in life and turn things around to do something good for the community or for the world in general. And I love that that's the direction you've taken. And certainly you're making a difference. You're making a difference in the lives of many, many people that couldn't do that for themselves. So that's absolutely uh, something so commendable, so inspiring. So thank you so much for being here today and for telling us about all the things you've done. It's incredible. Before we wrap up, could you tell our audience where they can find and follow you?
0: I'm active on LinkedIn. I should be more active on Twitter. I'm assuming there are some show notes so you can post some uh, links.
1: We will, absolutely.
0: Also, uh, our, our website is, uh, well, always in the state of being redesigned and rewritten, but I think it's uh, stable enough to read right now, which is just Verge.fund.
1: Excellent, yes. And we will definitely put that in the show notes as well. Joseph, thank thank you so much for being my guest today. I know you've you're doing this after a lot of travel and a long day. So I appreciate you making the time. I've so enjoyed this conversation with you. So thank you so much. And I wish you and, and your fund all the very best.
0: Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. And I uh, really, really appreciate the uh, chance to share hopefully some lessons that might be useful to others. Have a wonderful day. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe.